This is Come Follow Me with David Ridges for the week August 24th to August 30th, covering Helaman chapters 7 through 12. I'm your guest host, Sean Nobman. I am also a Cedar Fort author. I published uh, Shake the Powers of Evil with Captain Moroni, where Captain Moroni visits today's youth to show how all the lessons that he learned from defeating Amalekiah in his day apply to our youth today in defeating temptation in their lives. There is a verse in today's lesson that really captures my feelings on just um, on the Book of Mormon in general uh, and that I kind of want to begin with. In Helaman 7, uh, verse 29, it says, Behold, now I do not say these things shall be of myself, because it is not of myself that I know these things. But behold, I know these things are true, because the Lord God hath made them known unto me. Therefore I testify that they shall be. And the same goes for me, that I know that the Book of Mormon is true, not of myself, but because the Lord God hath made it known unto me, and I have received powerful witnesses of the Book of Mormon in my life, and especially of some of the things that we're going to discuss today. So our story begins in Helaman 7 with Nephi returning to Zarahemla after unsuccessfully trying to teach the people in the land northward. Upon his return, he found the judgment seats filled with Gadianton robbers and the people ripe for destruction. Helaman 7.4 reads, And seeing the people in a state of such awful wickedness and those Gadianton robbers filling the judgments, having usurped the power and authority of the land, laying aside the commandments of God, and not in the least aright before him, doing no justice unto the children of men. I want to talk to this idea of doing no justice unto the children of men and this whole idea of unjust judges. I'm an attorney, and I am before judges uh, pretty often, and I have to say that I, that I can't say that I have a lot of experience with unjust judges. There have been judges who... I disagreed with their interpretation or application of the law, but very few unjust judges. Uh, There really is not much worse than an unjust judge just ignores the truth, ignores justice, and does otherwise. I did have an experience back when I practiced in Texas several years ago where uh, there was a, the defense counsel filed a motion to dismiss. We were suing an attorney, and this this attorney was kind of the bigwig in this small Texas county. And I went to the, to the hearing to argue against this motion to dismiss the whole case at a very early stage and sure that there was no way we could lose. And um, the judge in this, it was a, one of these county courts in these rural Texas counties. Just, I mean, think Atticus Finch. I mean, beautiful old buildings, just sweeping staircases and vaulted ceilings, beautiful woodwork. And I stood there in this mostly empty courthouse in front of this judge and explained our side of the case. And he seemed to understand it and left thinking that all was well. Uh, One week later, we found out that he dismissed the case and we were shocked. And we looked into things and discovered that this judge had actually been voted out and that that day of our hearing was his last day on the bench and that he lived in that same county and that that attorney in that county had a lot of power. So we got hometowned, but not just hometowned, but hometowned by a judge who was looking to protect his own interests afterwards. We quickly filed a motion to reconsider this this dismissal, and motions to reconsider are very difficult to win. I went back to the court with the new judge and went in and explained things, and I will never forget how incredulous he was that the case had been dismissed. He was offended He was offended. He was deeply apologetic, and he restored and replaced the case 
as quickly as he could. And the feeling that I had was was moving. It, it the it was he was apologizing. He had apologized on behalf of the system, the courts, the state, and replaced and restored the case. And it it literally it healed something in me. It made life make sense again. And I really felt in that moment the power of an apology. He was apologizing for the prior judge's mistake and making restitution. And when we apologize, we correct, resolve, or heal the dissonance that we created in the person or persons we have hurt or treated unfairly. When we apologize, we reaffirm their view of the world. And interestingly, we also reaffirm the positive feelings that they've had towards us. Apologizing doesn't reinforce or endorse the negative feelings that we've created. It resolves them, and it reaffirms whatever positive feelings they had to us beforehand. I know that when people apologize to me, it, br- it brings a tremendous sense of relief. Like, okay, he does see the world like I see the world. I'm not crazy. We should always take time to apologize. I have felt the Spirit powerfully confirm truth both when I have been apologized to and when I have apologized to others for my own errors. Sometimes we parents need reminding that we can apologize to our children. Some of the sweetest spiritual experiences I have had with my children have been when I apologized for being the imperfect parent that we all are sometimes. If our goal is to teach our children how to recognize truth on their own, we must be willing to recognize with them those times that our own lives were inconsistent with truth or with patience or with long-suffering. If we are unwilling or unable to recognize those times with our children, we should not be surprised if our children begin to regard us like those judges in Helaman 7.4 and feel like we do no justice unto the children of men. If we are unwilling to apologize and bring our relationships with them under this umbrella of truth and consistent with their own barometer of truth, then we should not be surprised if they bristle under our efforts to help them accept the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How can they trust our barometer of truth, as it applies to religion, if we consistently in our own behavior disrupt their own spirit-given barometer of truth? Verse 5 in Helaman 7, it says that these unrighteous judges were condemning the righteous because of their righteousness, letting the guilty and the wicked go unpunished because of their money, and moreover to be held in office at the head of government to rule and do according to their wills that they might get gain and glory of the world, and moreover that they might the more easily commit adultery and steal and kill and do according to their own wills. These are terrible things, and uh, these things are happening in our world today, uh, but not to the extent yet that they will, and that is something that we should feel grateful for. But I can tell you that that our judges, many of them, and certainly the ones that, that I interact with, that they still do their very best to uphold righteousness and morality and goodness. And uh, we should do all we can to to promote the same. Um, so we're going to move on uh, not very much further into the chapter, but to a different idea. And in verse 6, it talks about how Nephi, he saw this wickedness and his heart was swollen with sorrow within his breast. And he did exclaim in the agony of his soul, Oh, that I could have had my days in the days when my father Nephi first came out of the land of Jerusalem, that I could have joyed with him in the promised land. Then were his people easy to be entreated, firm to keep the commandments of God, and slow to be led to do iniquity. And they were quick to hearken unto the words of the Lord. 
Yea, if my days could have been in those days, then would my soul have had joy in the righteousness of my brethren. So he's, he's, the grass is always greener, right? Nephi saying, if I could have been alive back when first Nephi was around in those days, then were the people easy to be entreated. Then were things wonderful. But I think that this, this, these verses are very interesting when you compare them to a contemporary of Nephi, his brother Jacob. In Jacob chapter 7, verse 26, let's see what Jacob says about things, about their life. And it came to pass that I, Jacob, began to be old, and the record of this people being kept on the other plates of Nephi. Wherefore, I conclude this record, declaring that I have written according to the best of my knowledge, by saying that the time passed away with us, and also our lives passed away, like as it were unto us a dream. We being a lonesome and a solemn people, wanderers, cast out from Jerusalem, born in tribulation, in a wilderness, and hated of our brethren, which caused wars and contentions, wherefore we did mourn out our days. Well, that doesn't sound like something that Nephi would necessarily want to return to. I love the humanity in both of these verses. These The, the comparison to these verses, for me, is one of the kind of internal or intrinsic proofs of the Book of Mormon. These were real lives. Jacob was describing a real life here. He was summing up this existence and the the difficulties that they went through with the Lamanites and among themselves. And Nephi is doing the same thing. But the grass is always greener. We we do the same thing today. If only, you know, we could go back and, oh, that my days were as in the days of Joseph Smith. Then was it easy to know that revelation was real and that God spoke to, to his people. Um, but was it the case? In, in Kirtland, after the temple was dedicated and they had all those incredible experiences, a lot of people fell away. A lot of people fell away. Today, people say, oh, a lot of people are falling away today. There have always been trials. There have always been difficulties. And there have always been people who have, who have become disaffected. There have always been those who walked with the Lord for a long time only to have the Lord look at them and ask, wilt thou also go away? And we should look at Jacob and we should look at Nephi and we should not wish that we lived in any different or other time, but we should recognize the good that there is today and the opportunity. The truth is that we all walk through life to our own musical soundtrack, and we all have our own treble clef and bass clef to most days. The key is to focus on the high notes rather than wallow in the low notes. And do we take the time to sing back the high notes from the lives of our friends and family, or are we constantly plucking away at their low notes? Do we accept the whole song as the symphony of our lives? Like all of us, sometimes even the likes of Nephi and Jacob can be brought down low by the burdens and the vicissitudes of life. But rather than focus on the relative greenness of the grass, we should take more time to sit in the sun or just smell the rain. Nephi was definitely aware of the low notes in Nephite society while he was on that tower in his garden. Some passersby heard his prayer. He lived near a major thoroughfare, and they gathered others to listen to Nephi's words. But before we discuss more of what Nephi said on that tower, let's stop for a moment and talk about the tower itself. As I mentioned before, Nephi's garden tower is not the only tower mentioned in the scriptures. We have the Tower of Babel, we have the Ramiumpton, we have King Mosiah's tower that he, or rather King Benjamin's tower, my mistake, King Benjamin's tower that he um, gave his famous discourse from. And then um, 
we also have the towers that Amalekiah built to to yell uh, to the people about how terrible the Nephites were. We also have the Tower of Wicked King Noah. All of these towers were built for different reasons, and they all they all met with a different fate and achieved different purposes. Uh, the Tower of Babel was famously destroyed. Um, Noah was killed. Uh, the Ramiumpton uh, obviously was not uh, uh, for righteous ends or purposes. King Benjamin's tower uh, converted an entire people. It, it'd be easy to just say, oh, towers are bad or, or towers are good. But the, the important thing is not the tower, but rather why is it being built? What are its purposes? What are its desired effects? A modern uh, comparison might be TV. Is TV itself inherently good or evil? Well, of course, it depends on how it is used. We can broaden the the tower analogy even further. You could say that each of us is proverbially building many towers in our lives. Our church membership is a tower, an individual tower that we're building. Our role as a spouse is another tower. Our role as a parent, a particular calling might be a tower, our occupation. The question is, why do we do the things that we do? Why are we building the tower? Does God care that we are building a tower, or does he only care why we are building it? Isn't it the why that mattered so much to all of those scriptural towers? It wasn't the height. It wasn't the materials. It was the why. Two people could perform the same task in the same way, and to one, it could be consecrated for the welfare of their soul and the souls of others, but to the other, it could be quite the opposite. Again, as an attorney, this question of intent is so very important in judgment and justice here on earth. And I'm convinced that intent will be even more important when we stand before the Holy One of Israel, who employeth no servant there. Who among us has never gotten into trouble even after our very best efforts to do the very best possible thing that we could in a particular moment of time? Is there a more Christ-like behavior than trying our best and still suffering? Perhaps the only more Christ-like behavior than that would be not reacting bitterly to that injustice. So when Nephi is standing up on that tower and he begins to preach to those who have gathered around him and to call them to repentance more accurately, at one point he says to them, Yea, woe shall come upon you. He says to, at one point he says to them, Yea, woe shall come unto you because of that pride which ye have suffered to enter your hearts which has lifted you up beyond that which is good because of your exceedingly great riches. Here is where I really feel the limitations of a podcast because I really want to hear everyone's thoughts on this idea of being lifted up beyond that which is good. There is a lot going on in those words, so many permutations and applications. If you're listening and you're thinking of a time when you felt that you knew someone in your life who had been lifted up beyond that which is good, I want you to stop for a moment. And instead, I want you to try to think of a time and all of us to think of a time when we were like, when we were lifted up beyond that which is good. Am I lifted up beyond that which is good? This is a good question to ask ourselves, especially in those moments when it seems like we are hitting all the high notes in our lives, when it seems like we can do no wrong and, and things are going very well. This, this question, am I lifted up beyond that which is good? It reminds me of a 2014 conference talk by Elder Uchtdorf called Lord Is It I?, That talk by Elder Uchtdorf is a great talk, but it also makes me laugh whenever I think of it. He gave it during a priesthood session, and I was watching it uh, live uh, with other men in the stake at the Springville Stake Center here in Utah. 
sitting in front of me was a, a, a fellow named Stephen Jones. He's an actor from the he's the actor from the BYU New Spice commercials from about ten years ago, and he's also been one of the hosts of the BYU TV show Random Acts. Now I knew who he was. I knew who he was, but he didn't know anything about me. But I happened to be sitting right behind him. Anyway, that whole talk is about asking ourselves if we are the problem instead of blaming others for our difficulty. Just as Elder Uchtdorf finished his talk and was sitting back down, Stephen leaned over to his friend sitting next to him and whispered, Dude, it's totally you. I seriously about died trying to stifle the burst of laughter that erupted from me. Uh, I still remember Stephen turning around and looking at me. He wasn't embarrassed for me or for himself, but he was delighted that I thought that it was so funny because obviously he thought it was funny too. Um, But the take-home lesson is that good things happening in our lives make us feel good, make us feel validated, and and lift us up. And that is good to an extent. But if that lifting causes us to look down on our covenants, to look down on the brethren, to look down on our local leaders, to look down on our faith, or to look down on anyone, then we have been lifted up beyond that which is good. And it is time for a retrenchment. It may be easier to see when others are lifted up beyond that which is good, but it is much more important to be able to say, Lord, is it I, and notice when it is happening to us. We're going to turn now to chapter 8 in, in, the, in the lesson. And after Nephi finished his first round of calling them all to repentance, uh, the judges that were in the crowd were angry with him. And verse 4 says, They were angry with him because he spoke plainly unto them concerning their secret works of darkness. Nevertheless, they durst not lay their own hands upon him, for they feared the people, lest they should cry out against them. And so instead they cried out to the people, and they said, Why do you let him revile us? And they said in verse 5, For behold, he doth condemn all this people, even unto destruction, yea, and also that these our great cities shall be taken from us, that we shall have no place in them. And now we know that this is impossible, for behold, we are powerful and our cities great. Therefore, our enemies can have no power over us. Well, wow, if if you ever find yourself saying that, just know that you're ripe for destruction. If you ever find yourself saying, therefore, our enemies can have no power over us, um, it, it stands to reason that likely we have been lifted up beyond that which is good. Um, But as they stirred up the people to anger, it says in verse 7, There were some who did cry out, Let this man alone, for he is a good man. And those things which he saith will surely come to pass, except we repent. And because of that, because people were defending Nephi, the leaders in verse 10, it says, They did not lay their hands on Nephi. Therefore, Nephi began again to speak unto them, seeing that he had gained favor in the eyes of some, insomuch that the remainder of them did fear. This is extremely important. There's that famous saying that there's nothing worse than, than good men and women not speaking up. And this right here, this willingness to speak up and, and say, let him alone. Let him teach. Let him preach. Let him talk. This is, this is a huge role that we all have, that good people across the world have. And especially uh, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that we need to make sure and we've been invited repeatedly to, to make our voices heard. And if once we go silent, then then we give free reign. We give free reign to those who would who would see who would see our downfall and who would see Christ's downfall. In verse eleven, Nephi says, "Behold, my brethren, have ye not read that God gave power unto one man, even Moses, to smite upon the waters of the Red Sea, and they parted hither and thither, 
And he keeps on talking there about the Egyptians and, and what happened. And in verse 12, Nephi says, If God gave unto this man such power, then why should ye dispute among yourselves and say that he hath given unto me no power, whereby I may know concerning the judgments that shall come upon you, except ye repent? This is really interesting because this is Nephi. Not Nephi here in Helaman, but this is Nephi, I think, First Nephi 17. This is Nephi repeatedly over and over again to Laman and Lemuel when they doubt, when they question. And that Nephi, the first Nephi, he repeatedly brings up Moses. Look, Moses part of the Red Sea. Moses did this. Moses did that. And so as I prepared this lesson, this was something that I never thought of before, but we, we all remember that Helaman gave his sons the names of Nephi and Lehi so that it may be said and written of them as it had been said and written of their first fathers. And it struck me as I prepared to teach this um, today that right here, Nephi hearkening back to Moses and using that as an example in Helaman 8, it is being said and written of him just as it was said and written of Nephi, that he fulfilled that prophecy, that he fulfilled that that hope and that dream that his father had for him. Um, he goes on to to teach and to testify of Christ and to 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 speak of Moses and the the how Moses held up the the brazen serpent and how it's a type of things to come and a type of Christ and how all of the prophets have testified of Christ. This is a powerful section of of Helaman 8 as Nephi testifies of Christ and testifies of the prophetic role to not be anything more than than a preacher and a and a testifier of Christ, a witness for Christ. So moving on now to to verse 21, Nephi says, And now will ye dispute that Jerusalem was destroyed? Will ye say that the sons of Zedekiah were not slain, all except it were Mulek? Yea, and do ye not behold that the seed of Zedekiah are with us? And they were driven out of the land of Jerusalem. This is really, this whole internal uh, confirmation of prophecy is really important because you, you recall when, when Lehi and his sons, they got to the promised land, Lehi had a dream and he told them, I have, it has been revealed unto me in a vision that Jerusalem has been destroyed. Now just imagine, I can almost hear the eye rolling from Laman and Lehi. Okay, dad, we are an ocean away from Jerusalem and you're telling us it's been destroyed. We cannot confirm or deny that prophecy at all. We have no idea. You can tell us whatever you want about Jerusalem because we're not around. But then you fast forward a few years and suddenly King Mosiah I, the father of King Benjamin, he's commanded to leave the land of Nephi and to get out and take all believers with him. And who do they find but the people of Zarahemla, who are the remnant of Mulek, the son of Zedekiah. And that's who that's who Nephi is referencing right here. He's referencing first look how Moses look how Moses was a prophet and how God worked through him. Now look how Lehi was a prophet. That he prophesied that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed and don't do we not know that Jerusalem was destroyed? Do we not have the people of Mulek? This is a really, I don't think, it's a really powerful confirmation for the people of, of for, the, for the Nephites when they find the people of Zedekiah. And it's clear, it's been a long time now that, um, that Nephi is alive. It's been several decades since they found the land of Zarahemla and the Mulekites. And the fact that he's using that as this example it demonstrates what a powerful confirmation of faith that it was, that we no longer have to rely on this testimony or this vision of Lehi, but we now have an entire separate group of people who are descended from 
Zedekiah, who was the king, and Mulek, who was his son, and who came over here too after Jerusalem was destroyed. So it's very interesting that, that, that Nephi uses this also, and it demonstrates, I think, the, the confirmation or the it demonstrates the, the confirmation of faith that the Lord provided to the Nephites. So as Nephi continues to, to teach and to prophesy, he, 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 this is one of the most incredible prophecies in Scripture because he literally prophesies of a real-time assassination. While he's on the Garden Tower, he says in verse 26 of Helaman 8, Yea, even at this time ye are ripening because of your murders and your fornication and wickedness for everlasting destruction. Yea, and except ye repent, it will come unto you soon. Well, that's pretty standard boilerplate prophecy right there. Repent or you'll be destroyed. And imagine in that moment the thought and the feeling and the prompting that Nephi gets and the faith that he shows to say what he is about to say. It's easy to say, oh, Nephi was a prophet. It was easy. No, what Nephi does right here was not easy. And the amount of faith that it required of him to prophesy this in the moment, we all need to let that sink in. In verse 27, Yea, behold, it is now even at your doors. Yea, go ye unto the judgment seat and search. And behold, your judge is murdered, and he lieth in his blood. And he hath been murdered by his brother who seeks to sit in the judgment seat. This is not like Lehi's dream of Jerusalem being destroyed an ocean away that no one can check on. Was Lehi right? Yes, he was right. But, but no one could verify. This is right now, today, this moment, our chief judge has been murdered by his brother. Everyone can run and see and check on this. And that brings us to Helaman 9, one of my favorite chapters. Verse 1, it says, Behold, now it came to pass that when Nephi had spoken these words, certain men who were among them ran to the judgment seat, ran to the judgment seat. Yea, even there were five who went, and they said among themselves as they went, Behold, now before I read verse 2, please pay attention to what these men said to themselves as they ran to the judgment seat. Behold, now we will know of a surety whether this man be a prophet, and God hath commanded him to prophesy such marvelous things unto us. Behold, we do not believe that he hath. Yea, we do not believe that he is a prophet. Nevertheless, if this thing which he hath said concerning the chief judge be true, that he be dead, then will we believe that the other words which he has spoken are true. This is a very powerful missionary passage. Because missionaries, everything that missionaries do, the whole song and dance, you get into a house, you sit down, and everything you do is so that they will pick up the Book of Mormon. You set that Book of Mormon down on the coffee table and you leave and you pray all day long that one moment in time, that day or the next, that they will walk by that coffee table, they will see that Book of Mormon and they will sit down and open it and begin to read. Everything missionaries do while they're in the home is to bring the Spirit powerfully enough to testify powerfully enough of Christ and of the Book of Mormon as another testament of Jesus Christ and to get them to be willing to be like these five men who are willing to run and see. And you can use, missionaries can use this verse and read this to your investigators because they will say, this sounds crazy. Joseph Smith was a prophet. An angel appeared or Christ appeared to and God appeared to a 14-year-old boy. That's crazy. The, the whole Book of Mormon, I don't believe it. I don't believe that this is true. They may say all those things and you read these verses and you say, neither did these men believe. They said, behold, we do not believe that he hath. Yea, we do not believe that he is a prophet. But they were willing. They were willing to run and see and to find out. And they had pure intent, like it talks about in, Moron, in, in Moroni 10. 
3 through 5, they had pure intent because it says, Nevertheless, if this thing which he has said concerning the chief judge be true, then we will believe that the other words which we, he has spoken are true. And so, elders and sisters, as you share this with your investigators and you ask them, if the Book of Mormon is true, what does that mean? They will have to admit, well, if the Book of Mormon is true, Joseph Smith must be a prophet. And you look at them and say, if the Book of Mormon is true and Joseph Smith is a prophet, then will you believe that these other things that he has taught is, are true? Then will you believe that families can be together forever, that we can be sealed together for time and all eternity? Then will you believe that we lived with God before we came and that we can all return to live with him again? Then will you believe and tell them, I do not expect you to know or to believe that this is true. All I am asking is if you are willing to run and see and that if you run and you read and pray, you read in this Book of Mormon and you pray to know if it is true, if you receive an answer from God that the Book of Mormon is true, will you believe these other things that have been revealed to Joseph Smith, that the priesthood has been restored, that you need to be baptized by one having authority to receive a forgiveness of your sins and to return to live with God again? I promise you from personal experience that if you use these verses, that you use this example from Helaman 9 as a missionary, both as, a, as an official full-time missionary and in our missionary efforts at home, it is so powerful. It is so powerful to look at an investigator or a friend or anyone that we're sharing the gospel with and look at them and say, I don't expect you to believe this. I only expect you to be willing to run and see, to understand, to grasp how important this is, how great the importance to make this known unto the inhabitants of the children of men. Would this be important to know if Christ came to the Americas? Would this be important to know if God restored his true church through Joseph Smith in these days? Yes, it would. If you knew it were true, would you be willing to follow it? Would you be baptized? Yes. Well, the way to know is to run and see. It is to read and pray. And I know that those who sincerely pray with pure intent, that they will receive an answer, that they do receive answers, and they will know that the Book of Mormon is true. And just like these five who arrived at the judgment seat and found the chief judge dead on the ground and were so astonished that our friends, our investigators, that they too will receive that witness. They will receive that witness. So, of course, this was not enough, right? This was almost too much. It was too incredible. Nobody could believe it. The, 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 the leaders of the Nephites, they became convinced that Nephi had colluded with the assassin and prophesied this and contrived to create this whole scenario to convince people that he was a great man and a wise leader and a prophet just to basically create acolytes for himself, right? Worshippers for himself. And so I just, the exasperation, Nephi is such a modern character. The exasperation when they come to him and they're, he's just like, really? Now you think that I've colluded with somebody? This is, I mean, what does it take? I mean, what do I, what, what's a guy got to do? And so he then, he's like, fine, here's another one. Go and speak to uh, Siantum, I think his name is, the brother of of Sizorum, the chief judge, and say this and say that and ask him, you know, where, where, where did this blood come from? Did you not kill your brother? Did you collude with Nephi? And, and bam, they go and they ask Siantum and he confesses to the whole thing. And he says that Nephi, he's like, Nephi could not have had anything to do with this unless it was given to him by God. And so the leaders then, they're just, they've got nothing, right? They've got absolutely nothing against Nephi. 
And in verses 39 to 41 of, of, of chapter 9, it says, And he was brought to prove that, oh, sorry, verse 39, And there were some of the Nephites who believed on the words of Nephi, and there were some also who believed because of the testimony of the five, for they had been converted while they were in prison. And now there were some among the people who said that Nephi was a prophet, and there were others who said, Behold, he is a god, for except he was a god, he could not know of all things. For behold, he has told us the thoughts of our hearts, and also has told us things, and even he has brought unto our knowledge the true murderer. So everybody was just amazed. Everybody was amazed. But they were not in agreement. And chapter 10, verse 1 reads, And it came to pass that there arose a division among the people, insomuch that they divided hither and thither, and went their ways, leaving Nephi alone, as he was standing in the midst of them. This is such a beautiful scene. I want you to imagine this verse as a movie scene, and Nephi standing in the midst of the city of Zarahemla, literally everyone. And he's just been exonerated that he didn't collude to kill anyone and proven at the same time that he's a prophet of God and there arose a division and people didn't know what to do and he's standing in the middle and everyone just kind of fades and all of a sudden he's there alone. And now I want you to imagine that you're there and imagine that you stayed. Nephi is left alone. He looks up. I'm staying with you. Imagine Nephi's reaction. Now, of course, this we don't know anyone stayed and we don't know if this happened but imagine his feelings at being left alone and imagine him looking at you and being the one who stayed how he would be i believe that that feeling that that look that you can imagine on nephi's face that that's the look that christ has when we stand by him when we stand up for him when we testify of him even when it's very difficult even when it's very hard I, when I was a missionary, I had, in my mission, I was a mess. I wanted to be obedient. I had no idea what I was doing. I worked so hard to be obedient and to teach, and I didn't, I just, I was trying to figure things out. And my first interview after a couple months with my mission president was, I was a mess, and I needed a lot of help. And he spent the whole time just trying to, like, help me to feel confident and helped me to know that things were okay and explaining things to me. And and my, uh, looking back, it must have been just a real chore for him to, to have to help young Elder Knobman. Um, fast forward to the end of my mission, and I had an interview. Just a, He was there interviewing the zone, and the AP told me to go in, and I had a couple months left there, but I had been there for quite a while. And, and I don't think that the president had a list of when people were coming in. Because when I opened the door and walked into the room, the other missionary had just left, you know, a minute before. I opened the door and I walked in and my mission president looked up at me and I'll never forget the look of relief and joy and happiness that was on his face. How happy he was to see me and how he knew where I stood. That he knew that the next 10 or 15 minutes that he was not going to need to lift a finger, but that he was just going to get to chat that we were doing together everything that we could to bless the lives of the Chileans, that he knew my heart. And it reminds me, and I referenced this this verse, but I want to go to Second Nephi 9.41. So in Second Nephi 9.41, it reads, O then, my beloved brethren, come unto the Lord, the Holy One. Remember that his paths are righteous. Behold, the way for man is narrow, but it lieth in a straight course before him. And the keeper of the gate is the Holy One of Israel. And he employeth no servant there. And there is none other way save it be by the gate, for he cannot be deceived, for the Lord God is his name. 
I love this imagery that there's this these two stools and there's a gate and a long line and Christ is sitting on one of them and everyone's waiting in line. There, There's no servant. He employeth no servant there. We all need to go through Christ. We all get a one-on-one. And when I get there, when I walk through that door to that meeting, and when Christ looks up to see me, I want him to look at me like my mission president looked at me at the end of my mission in that interview, where he feels relief, where he feels like he just is friend. As he knows me, he knows that I have been on his side, doing his will, doing everything that I could for him, and that when I've needed to repent, because I do, that I've been on my knees. I hope that we can all think of Nephi and imagine Nephi as this great example of Christ. It goes on, it goes on to talk about how he's given the sealing power and how he he saves the the people who go to war by by bringing a famine instead. And I'm not going to get into those chapters, but I want to talk about Nephi and how he is this progression from Alma to Alma to Helaman to Helaman to Nephi to Nephi. Nephi, this Nephi is given the sealing power. We have we we don't see Alma being given the sealing power, or Helaman being given the sealing power. There is there appears to be the Book of Mormon is really the story of Alma the Elder and his descendants. I mean, you have you have Nephi in the beginning, and then you have Alma the Elder who flees from the wicked king Noah. And then Alma the Younger, and then Helaman, Helaman, Nephi, Nephi. The bulk of the pages of the Book of Mormon are from that Alma to that Nephi. And there is a progression of power, of spiritual power and spiritual gifts from Alma the Elder to that Nephi who was the Nephi who was the prophet, the son of this Nephi and the prophet when Christ came. That Nephi raised his brother Timothy from the dead, you might recall. Alma the Younger was translated. There's this progression. And when Nephi here in, in, in these chapters is given the sealing power, the Lord says to him, Behold, Nephi, I have seen how you have shared my word, preached my word with unwariness. After he was left alone, he went away to ponder on these things. And that's when the angel appeared to him. That's where the Lord appeared to him. I, I don't remember who specifically it was, but that's where he was given the sealing power. And it, it says, I have beheld your unwariness in declaring my word. You have not sought your life, but my will. And indeed, when the vision ends, he does not return to his home. He does not rest, but he goes among the people to preach and to call them to repentance. Now, I do not in any in any way intend to to minimize Alma or Alma the Younger, but you, th- there's very interesting verses where it talks about Alma the Younger, that after a time preaching to the people that he goes home to rest and we all need rest and we cannot run faster than we have strength. But this unwariness of Nephi here in these chapters, there's something to our indefatigability. Man, that's a hard word to say, but our ability to not be weary and well, weary and well-doing our ability to not be weary and well-doing. There's something to, not being tired of testifying of the Lord, not being tired of promoting righteousness and its connection to our spiritual gifts and spiritual power. And that's overwhelming, to be honest. It's overwhelming to think about. But I bear my testimony that I know that Christ is with us and that he does not ask us to be like Nephi today, just like he didn't ask Alma the Elder to be like Nephi. He asks us to do our best and to pray for help and to become our best selves. I bear my testimony that I know that Jesus Christ lives, that I know that he died for our sins, 
and I know that we can access the strengthening and enabling power of the atonement to help us bit by bit, day by day, be less and less weary in well-doing, less and less wary of standing up for the Lord, and that as we are faithful to him, faithful to these words in the Book of Mormon, that our own spiritual strength and our own spiritual power will grow day by day. I know these things are true, and I thank you for taking the time to listen, and I hope that there's been something here that has been a benefit to you and to yours, and I share these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more Come Follow Me teaching materials, visit cedarfort.com. Use code CFPODCAST to save 15% on your entire order. That's C as in cedar and F as in fort, podcast, for 15% off your entire order.